The Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the final edition of the Door County Pulse podcast ever, no, of 2023. This is the final one we are recording in 2023 and we got a few interesting things to finish the year out with. We're going to talk uh, a little later in the podcast about the new alcohol rules that uh, the state of Wisconsin passed in December and how we're starting to figure out how that's trickling down to people on the street in business in Door County, particularly with wedding barns. So we'll get to that later on in the episode. But before that, there's some traffic information, <laughs> traffic and weather together on the eights here on the Door County Pulse podcast. <laughs> um, now there's some detour information coming up for the village of Egg Harbor, a little conversation about AI art, which we'll get to shortly and local elections for next year so far. And that's where I want to start, Deb. So joining me today, Deb Fitzgerald, welcome back to the podcast studio. Thanks, Miles. <laughs> I didn't even think of it as our last one of the year, but yes, it is. That's crazy. Yeah, we were recording this on Friday, December 29th. And we should know that because it is the final issue of the paper. It is issue 52. So today is the day that issue 52 is widely available. And so that's what we're talking about. There are a few things that you'll be able to find in the Pulse. So let's start with the election. So kind of the things for next April's local elections are shaping up. We're starting to get a read on who is running both county board and local stuff. So what do you got for us, Deb? Well, so I just did a reminder of the fact that the candidate filing period ends on January 2nd. So if anybody wants to run for local office, they need to get those nomination papers in. By that January 2nd date, it's always the first Tuesday in January. So I did talk with Jill Lau county clerk to get an update on the Door County Board of Supervisors race because all 21 seats are up for election. We had reported earlier that Dave Lenow, who is the chair and District 19 supervisor, wouldn't be running. So he had filed for non-candidacy. And there are a couple of others too. Alexis Heim-Peter, she is no longer going to be uh, running. Dan Ostad, who is Oh my gosh, I don't know how long he has been over, on the county over board. Over 40 years, I believe. Yeah, so I, I'm really excited to reach out to him and talk to him about his experiences on the county board. I know that he used to, I mean, he was on it when I covered it years and years ago. So anyway, looks like he's finally retiring. And then the fourth person who has filed for non-candidacy is District 8 Supervisor Rodney Beardsley. Mm. So he has not been on for very long. There are no contests yet, but again, this was an update with still about a week to go. So there were no contests with the exception. Claire Morgan is a sitting supervisor for District 7, and she has a challenger in Wayne Daniel. So there is a race for the vacancy for Dan Osted's district. There are two people who have already filed for that, and that's Ryan Shaw and Jonathan Cruz. Mm. And then there is a Philip Rockwell who has filed for the seat that Alexis Heimpeter is getting out of. So there are also municipal races, not every municipality. So not all towns in Dora County and villages are having races, but we'll have the complete details after the uh 
nomination period closes, and as well as school boards. So all five districts have seats open. All right, so that's where we're at on the election news heading into the new year. That'll shape up a lot more in the first couple of weeks of January, and I'm sure we'll have a lot of reports on that. And then you'll go through the misery of trying to get questionnaires out to everybody and try and squeeze that into the paper when all the races come out. Something, you know, I don't know if it's like the post-COVID lull, but it just seems like it's not as hotly contested, at least so far. But Mm -hmm. we'll see what happens in these last couple of days. The other thing uh, I want to touch on really quick is Egg Harbor, some of that construction on their highway, that long-awaited construction that's been in the works since at least 2015, finally getting started on that. And that means some wonderful detours and (laughs) construction interruptions through the village. What do we got? Well, because the Department of Transportation is involved with this project, I mean, that's the reason why the village is doing its portion of the project. They have to have these crazy detours, which only follow county roads or state highways. So they are routing people. And I saw the signs when I I commute on County Road I, and I saw the signs already that they're rerouting people like seven miles away before they even get to the village of Egg Harbor. That detour is Highway 57 to County Road V to County Road A to County Road E. So, yeah, (laughs) 57 to County Road V. So, I mean, they're just saying don't even take, don't even go up 42 to bypass Carlsville altogether. Well, we know that that's not going to be the case for the majority of people who are traveling around Northern Door. So there are alternative routes that the village has put together on their website. So that's a really helpful resource. We also have it on our website, doorcountypulse.com. We have the map so you can see the alternate routes. Anybody who lives up here, you kind of know how you're going to be going so that you don't have to go through the downtown. Well, you can't go down through the village of uh, Egg Harbor. As of January 2nd, there's going to be fits and starts of places closed and open. So businesses will still be accessible. All of the details are on the Village of Egg Harbor website. And this is similar to people who were familiar with this when Gibraltar had their construction a few years ago. The official detour was as you go through Egg Harbor, you detour at Highway E on the north end of Egg Harbor to go to County A. So people would be confused by that. And in actuality, you could go all the way up to Penn Players Road and take that around. You could get into the village. But, uh, you know, it's important to let people know that, like, okay, that that is basically, they have to detour it that way. I think what they said when that happened in Gibraltar was for heavy trucks. They couldn't detour them officially onto, like, town roads because they would crush the roads. So they have to go on roads built to sustain heavy vehicle traffic, and that is county and highway roads. That makes sense. The village provided certain alternate routes, and like, for instance, Harbor School Road to Church Street to County E. So they have a number of those. Yeah. So basically, you can go to Egg Harbor. You just got to go on the back way in Yep. for all those businesses. Yes. So I know. That's the, that's I know the I easy way to know, <laughs> to, yeah. to, to say what the DOT says in a very complicated way. Right. So don't be scared. If you're coming north of Sturgeon Bay, you see this these detour routes, don't think that you like are going to have, if you keep following the highway, you're not going to be stuck somewhere. Yes, you won't. And the detour sign does say like a County Road I, it will say road closed in seven miles. <laughs> so you'll, you'll deal with it when you get there at that seven mile mark. <laughs> <laughs> and there are plenty ways to do that. So anyway, that's coming down. 
Well, and it's important to get that out there because it's really important to those local businesses that people know they're still trying to stay open, that they're still available to them. And, you know, anything we can do to like make sure people are aware of that. So, mm-hmm. cause they need every dollar they can this time of year. Right. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about an article that Sam Watson did for this week's art section that is pretty interesting take on, on where art's going based on technology. The Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kewanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, Apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. And we're back. Deb, I'm going to let you take this because you're pretty familiar with it. You were pretty excited about this article from Sam Watson about how artificial intelligence might be used for for art, which seems like an oxymoron. (laughs) (laughs) It does. And so this is a really cool story that Sam wanted to do. And she spoke with probably 12 to 15 different artists in Door County. And a good number of them are in in exactly what they think about AI art. And artificial intelligence art is basically using algorithms and the vast storage of information that is on the cloud to be able to come up with a piece of art based on a command that you give it. So if you say something like, draw me a photo of Cave Point in Wisconsin, then it will paint a portrait of Cave Point. And... Sam did that, so it's a really cool look at, and then she has side-by-side with that a photo from an actual painter, human painter, and then the photos that she did within, you know, 30 seconds, a minute or so. So I looked at both of those trying to discern I'm not an art critic in any way. Like, I don't know what I'm looking at for brushstrokes and that kind of thing. So for somebody like me, I could be fooled pretty easily because it looks like Sam's AI art looked pretty good. (laughs) So there is a lot of controversy over it. Some people think that it's just another tool. After all, they are using the archives that humans create. So it's not like it's just being generated out of nowhere. So some of the artists voiced uh, fear about what is going to be happening to the world of art. Similar to what Helen at the Miller Art Museum, I had a conversation with her and she was talking about how artists viewed photography when it first came out. And they were also afraid of it because they thought this is the end. I think that was the quote too that one painter said, this is the end of art. So AI art is another technology that could totally shake up the way that we not only create but view creation from others. So it's a really interesting story, and I encourage everybody to take a look at it. I've never thought about, like, the the economic implications of photography coming on board and, like, the idea of that seen as a threat, which I guess just like every other technology that's a little newer, like radio hated the idea of TV. TV hates the idea of the Internet. You know, all these things that we think is going to crush one or the other and usually ends up being an evolution, except for the Internet really actually crushing newspapers, but yeah. the, Not but photography with the like, exception it, of our newspaper, with the exception of ours, but you think of that if you're a portrait artist and you're like, oh, now, now people don't need me to paint them. <laughs> like, that's just a, a wild thought that I had never really thought of. And that's the thing. 
maybe that will happen. I mean, but we don't know. I mean, and maybe it will just enhance what's what's going on out there. I I don't know if you have gotten on Chat GP. Yeah, you have. Yeah. So I have not used it. And that's how I write most of my articles now. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. So <laughs> I was. <laughs> so that's what I was thinking is I really should try that to see what it is. But then this little thing in the back of my head said, if you do that, you will never go back. If I am laboring over a sentence, which I do quite frequently, and something can very easily and concisely state it, I don't know. There have been newspapers that have tried to do it with mm. AI, and I think there was just a big scandal of Sports Illustrated, actually. Turns out they were using a lot of fake writers, but using uh, fake images to say, like, oh, this is actually a writer, and basically lying to their readers and generating the articles that way. You can tell still like the articles they write, maybe the general public can't. I definitely can tell when I see them. I, I saw this one segment, I think it was 60 Minutes. I might have told you about this when they went to all of these different campuses and had the real article and fake article and nobody could tell the difference. Hmm. And I mean, I do know that newspapers have departments now that are just for AI. Like it mm-hmm. is incorporated into... A lot of things that most newspapers do. Yeah. So press releases, that kind of thing. Sports I mean, coverage so, in a lot of places. Yeah. So, I mean, it is widely used and I don't see any harm in that if it's being, you know, if the facts that are being fed into the mechanism are, are accurate, you know, yeah. I mean, so they use the same standards really whole departments. They have this editors for it. They, I mean, they use the same kind of standards. They just don't have the people actually putting the words together, you know, Mm -hmm. a little weird, but I haven't used it. I know a lot of people who use it in their work, my wife included, but a lot of folks I talk to in sales and things will be like, all right, write me a pitch letter for this. And then you just edit from what, you know, it's not coming out clean. Yeah. But you can, it's almost like having a personal assistant Mm -hmm. for them in some cases of like, Instead of researching all this, like, here's the basics, and then I'm like, all right, I, I spruce this up for our product. So is it trustworthy that way, though? That's what I always wonder. Like, if here are the basics, like, are you getting basic well, that's stuff? The, you, like, you know, like, that's the question. You could very easily, like, trust it yeah, and send it and have some fact very wrong or some right something that, I, I don't know, I'm sure you could screw stuff up or language screw up. But, you know, a lot of people are really bad at I take it for granted. Like I, I write for a living, mm-hmm. writing emails. I don't toil over those words, but I have mm-hmm. a lot of friends and family members who struggle to write an email. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of professional people. So the example, like this thing probably writes it better than they can. Yeah. I never even think of that too. And if it does like an email, I mean, just a general email that you're corresponding with somebody. Yeah. That's a, that, I don't know. It's a good point. And you can just for a business email, make it simple and not stress over it. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't either. Right. But yeah, that's an application that I can see being practical for a lot of people. Well, if you're interested in AI art, Sam Watson's gallery in the Pulse office is open now and she's <laughs> right, right. doing cheap knockoffs. Of, no, um. <laughs> so we're selling them at DoraCountyPulse.com. Yes. <laughs> so you can go there. But speaking of writing, you've been working on a story now for a while. And I mean, it is in this week's newspaper. Talk about a crappy piece of legislation. <laughs> That's a great intro right there. It took you a long time to do this because it is so poorly written and so obscure so this is a law that passed, and and you almost need an attorney or somebody to 
kind of transcribe it. But tell us what this law is, when it passed, and basically what it says. So the state of Wisconsin pushed through, and, and largely all sides say like the Tavern League was a big part of this particular bill, to overhaul our alcohol regulatory system. And I won't get deep into the weeds, but it is a convoluted system that we've long had that was sort of created in the 1930s in a totally different environment. And it's just been like cobbled together over years with a new tweak, a new rule here, a new law here. But really the framework of it is still what we've created after prohibition. And there's been a push to overhaul that. It is cumbersome. Having been in the industry, in the tavern industry myself, I know it's cumbersome. And I know how, you know, over the years, there's been, there's quirky ways that Wisconsin law works where like a a winery would have to, rather than serve it itself, it would have to go through a distributor, make the wine on site, send it to a distributor, and then buy it back from the distributor to be able to sell it on its own site. You okay. Know? It was like entrenching middlemen in the system. So the legislation has to do with the sale of alcohol yes. and every single kind of entity that sells alcohol. Every way, basically, and this this law touches all ends of it. Okay. And so because there were some entities and venues that didn't exist back when they first started this, like wedding barns, or if you're an art gallery and you have events where you sell alcohol, None of those things existed, so they weren't really covered right. under the existing law. Okay, yes. So they kind of not only overhauled everything, but brought other those other things into it. And this thing covers so many areas that I won't get into the weeds on, yeah. on all these, but like things like contract brewing, contract winemaking, again, things that weren't happening 50, 60 years ago, but are a big part of the marketplace today. The number of breweries we've had, the craft brewing scene, there's all sorts of different aspects that are that are impacted, the, the whole distribution network of alcohol. But the thing that I started hearing about last spring, and this has come up a, and been quick quickly like squelched a couple times over the last five years. Yeah. But this effort to kind of ban wedding barns was a big part of it. So I would hear about this and I would kind of discard it. You know, I myself, I got married in a barn. My sister got married at Camp David. You know, it's, it's something that's, was like, all right, where can we get married cheap or more affordably, at least? Yeah. Camp David, very cheap. <laughs> um, but so I started hearing about this. And I'm like, well, no, they're not going to do that. What Wedding barns have been huge for the economy. Like, and maybe that's a, a local viewpoint that I have, but like weddings as an industry in Door County have skyrocketed over the last 20, 25 years. It was back in my days bartending. It was a big deal. If you even, if you heard of a bachelorette party in town, it was like, the phone calls are going from bar to bar. There's a bachelorette party in town or there's a bachelor party going on. Like it just didn't happen that often. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go to Sister Bay in the summer on a Saturday or a Friday, you might run into five, six, seven parties and trolleys alone. And so- It's very common to see people wearing those funny headsets. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and t-shirts and right. all the other stuff. Right, yes. Plus you have, you know, a place like Garden Gables, the Northern House, 1211's event space. Woodwalk Gallery, About Time Farm, a lot of wedding barn type venues have opened up and it's not just weddings, it's, uh, you know, nonprofit fundraisers that would be held in these places. These have made Door County, it's been, it's become a little bit part of the brand here, right? And weddings bring in a ton of people. I was once talking to the manager at the Open Hearth Lodge who said, you know, our business is, is just great and it's, it's great for longer because we're right down the road from Northern House. So we're like a, you know, 
easy place for people to stay if there's a wedding there. And there's a lot of weddings at the Northern House. So it's been a big boon to the economy, and it's probably played a, a not insignificant role in introducing new people to the area. Because you think about a wedding, destination weddings where people live outside the area, or even if they live here and one of the partners is from up here, you're inviting people from all over. you got a 150-person wedding. There's a significant portion of those people who've probably never been here before, and then they come up here, and you're at a wedding. So it's like one big party with all your friends. You can't. It's really hard to not have a good time in that setting, so the odds of them becoming repeat visitors are pretty good or moving here one day are pretty good. So it has a larger economic impact. So I just thought when I first started hearing about this, I'm like, nah, that's not going to go anywhere. What's the downside to wedding barns? The There's got to be one. The argument against them is what some of the proponents of this bill have said, like, oh, we're just leveling the playing field and we're just, uh, you know, we're ensuring safety. We're ensuring safety of the serving of alcohol. As if, like, taverns have long been known for their safety. <laughs> you know, like, as a proponent of taverns, right? And, and especially when you start digging into some of the ways that they have <laughs> clamped down on wedding barn permits and what they can do. I mean, they're, they're basically, according to your reporting, minimizing the number of times they can actually have weddings. And so I don't know how that plays into safety. Neither do the wedding bar owners and neither do the legislators. I have talked to Andre Jacques and Joel Kitchens, Assemblyman Joel Kitchens, State Senator Andre Jacques. Andre Jacques voted against this bill. Joel Kitchens voted for it. And both of them admitted, like, this is a very murky bill. Like, I don't know exactly how this will be enforced. I had not thought about that particular aspect or... Mm, I don't know if that's in the bill. I'm like, no, that's definitely in the bill. Yeah. <laughs> and so this thing was passed rather quickly without a lot of public hearing. and Bipartisan. And it was a bipartisan bill. It's not Republican or Democrat. And because there's so many aspects of the industry involved here that basically wrote it for them, that's why these legislators don't know what's in it, because the industry wrote it. This would be um, great for us. This wouldn't. Obviously, wedding yep. barns don't have a big lobby. No, not at all. Is there even an association that would cover a wedding? There bonds? is a agricultural association that has been like their leading voice for, okay. for this. But they again, need to step not up a lot of sway. You're going against big distributors, big beer, and the Tavern League. So, Tavern League maybe some people think is the strongest lobby in Wisconsin. Right. Given all of the different aspects of this law, you did drill down into how it impacts certain venues and wedding barns are one of them. So what is the impact on so, wedding barns and their like? So what it means, and they just, they qualify them as event venues. So it's not just wedding barns. And that's why, you know, as a, a board member of a nonprofit, it impacts us and what we can do um, on our property. Any property that is held out for rent or hosts a public event is subject to some of these new rules that may impact them. So I would encourage anybody who's on a board to investigate this law and try and learn more about what it will mean for them. Because say for right on. We occasionally do something that we might combine storytelling with wine or beer or music and serve beer, even if it's free, and storytelling, you know, on our site. A lot of places will do something similar. Uh, gallery will have free wine and beer. And how that's always been governed, and this is probably something I should do, I should set the groundwork here, is that you have not needed a liquor license in those cases, if it was considered like a private event. So a wedding is a private event. You're inviting people. It's not open to the public. And you are renting the space from the wedding barn owner. And then they are not responsible for your alcohol and stuff. Most of them require that you have a licensed bartender serving them. All the ones I know of up here, they require that. Or 
they have their bartenders that they are like, here's who you have to use kind of thing, just to ensure that there's a licensed alcohol server. But they don't have to do the inventory. They don't order it. They don't sell it to you. So for you as a couple getting married, you can go down to Costco, buy the booze, bring it in, and serve it to all your friends, just like if you were hosting a Packer party, right? And because that's what you're doing. You're just hosting a big party for all your loved ones. And that saves you a ton of money. So let's say you can go and get $1,000 worth of booze. You pay your bartenders. You serve them all. If you do the same thing at a venue that has a liquor license that is charging you for that, for those same like craft cocktails or anything that you might want to serve at your wedding, you're going to pay, and people get jacked on weddings, you know, so you're going to pay 10 to 12 bucks a drink at a lot of these places, maybe more. So that $1,000 bill can be a $15,000 bill. Ah, there it is. So they don't want to cut out the distributors. They don't want to cut out those who actually provide the alcohol. Well, the distributors still get their money. Because they're selling it to the grocery store that's selling it to you. True. They're okay. still getting theirs. The Tavern League's argument is that it's an unfair playing field because that business could be going to a bar venue. Like a, well, think of what Mr. G's used to be. Like, it's like, well, Mr. G's has all this licensing and these wedding bars are, comp- and I'm not putting Mr. G's on the spot here. This is just the example that popped in my head. Yes. Could be the landmark, could be something else. But that wedding could be there, and now they're get going there because this other place because it's cheaper. So the- that's called competition? Yes, I, and I, I, I do get the idea of, like, it is competing with my business, and it's not quite the same because they don't have to get their liquor license and stuff, but they would maybe if you could sometimes. like, Or it's just the, the bars, most of the bar owners I talked to said, we make so much money because there's so many more weddings up here. So it's almost so, so like many the, people come up here for the bachelor parties, the bachelorette parties. They come to the bar after the wedding, and most of these bars are like, I'm glad I didn't have to deal with the wedding. All I have to do is make money on them after the reception, right? Sure. So it's not just that one event venue that is making money. I mean, it's the hotels, it's the flowers, it's the bars, it's the retail, it's yep. everything. It's kind of like food vendors versus restaurants. You know that argument where some restaurants are like, you know what? We don't want food trucks. Oh, sure. Because food trucks, you know, we have to pay taxes. We have to pay property taxes. We have to keep up our buildings. We have to hire people. And then these food vendors, food trucks come in and they don't have to do any of that. So that was, that's the big argument. And it still is in some communities. I mean, they're licensing those. So this reminds me of that. Where, you know, it's almost like a wedding event or an event venue is kind of a pop-up that doesn't have the, yeah. Very similar to that. And the thing that a lot of the wedding barn owners said, it's like, we didn't get into this to become bar owners. We didn't want to be bar owners. But you're kind of like, you're forcing us to do that if you want us to go out and get a liquor license and run it that way and possibly add a bunch of expense if we do that. And then it's no longer attractive for the person who's booking one of those places for their wedding because now they're going to be paying Really high alcohol fees, yeah, it, right? I, I have a lot of friends who did weddings and bars primarily to keep their costs down. Sure. And also, then there's others who do it because of the aesthetic. So if you, you know, for me, I was not interested in getting married in a conference hall or a hotel ballroom and no knocking anybody else who does that, but that wasn't what we wanted. And that's clearly what a lot of people across the country want. Mm-hmm. And so some of these other people said, like, we're getting destination weddings, bring money into our community from Green Bay, Milwaukee. Madison, Chicago, all those places, if you're going to ban, essentially make those more expensive or impossible here, those people can go to wedding barns in Illinois, Minnesota, Iowa, and in Michigan instead. 
mm-hmm. then may very well do that, especially if it's going to save them significant sums of money. The other thing is, if you take away the wedding barn business, there aren't a lot of venues here. You don't have a lot of large-scale venues, especially now with Mr. G's being gone. That was the largest one, at least whenever I went to the big, for lack of a better word, big towny weddings, <laughs> you know, where you had three, 400 people, that was about it. But otherwise, there's not that many other venues to do large-scale events. And now we we don't have Rally's Bay Resort either. And plus, I mean, you, you brought this up early on. When you get married in a place, then you tend to return to it. And you're not going to be returning to the wedding barn. You're going to be returning to a hotel. And you're going to yeah. be going out to the bar. So, I mean, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were selected for the atomic bomb because... The person who made that decision, the Secretary of War, had honeymooned in one of the other Japanese cities that was on the list. I'm not saying that... (laughs) I would love how you bring this one home. (laughs) I'm not saying that this law is now going to open us up to the possibility that the atomic bomb is going to be... I just saw Oppenheimer, so that's... (laughs) Which is an excellent movie. I really do recommend anybody see that. However, so people come back to the place where they got married. I mean, they, th- those are their best memories. And so they come back and they bring their kids back and they're not going ever again to the wedding barn. So the wedding barn is the thing that lures them in. And so the Tavern League should be embracing them for the future revenue that they'll be getting. You would think. So that's their lobby. They need that as their lobby. So here's another twist in this. So this is what, when Joel Kitchens, Governor Tony Evers, who signed it, when they first talked about this, they said, no, this doesn't put wedding barns out of business. It just gives them a license that they can now get. And I said, well, what is that? And it, well, they have a, a no-sale event venue license. They created a new license for wedding barns. Like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Then I look at the law. If you're Garden Gables right now, you can do up to, I think, six events a year. If you are about Time Farm, you can do 10. Woodwalk Gallery, being in Egg Harbor, they can do I think unlimited they could do. And that's dependent on what municipality they live in? Is yep, that county how zoning that and okay. like Liberty Grove limits it to six. It used to be 10. They cut it down to six. So okay. these places are already limited in the number of events they can do. Okay. The new law, however, in as it exists now, they can have a couple buy their own beer, wine, liquor, and bring it in. The new no-sale event venue license that has been touted as, hey, this is your way to just do it like you always have. Well, one, it's only beer and wine. So you can't have liquor Mm. with that license, which means no featured cocktail, no old fashioned at a Wisconsin wedding. That's going to be hard to do. Mm. (laughs) No liquor at all, just beer and wine. And if you get that beer and wine and you have a caterer, which what wedding does not have a caterer, you have to buy it through the caterer. So it's also not the same in that facet. And for the venue, they are limited to just six events a year statewide. And of those six, You can only do one per month. And this is part of the law that nobody could explain to me why you would do it one per month. And so with that no sale event license, I talked to Lucas Lindau at About Time Farm and he said, if I'm limited to six in a year and one per month, I can't do weddings in the winter months in my barn. Like, are they expecting me to do weddings in April Mm -hmm. in my barn in Door County in May? Because now I'm limited basically like Woodwalk, almost all their weddings are late June through September. So you're really starting to limit them to like three weddings per year unless they can book someone in June, May, or October, which is, that's a much smaller market. And Um, that's just one of the licenses that they can get. I think you reported that there were two different licenses that can get 
can they mix those? Like, no. can they get both? Okay, so you have so one, they can you can't have one. the other. Okay. In fact, an earlier version, I think they wiped this out, but they initially had, if you ever had a Class B license before, you now can't qualify for this other new license. And I think that got struck because that, a lot of places would get that at, at various points. But the other license that they offer that they say is the solution for this is, well, they can just get a liquor license, and we've now made special above-quota liquor licenses available for wedding barns. So just like this past year, Town of Gibraltar made their above-quota license available and awarded it to Welker's Lounge. For $10,000. For $10,000, and there was a fight over who, you know, there were five different places vying for that. So now you're going to, and then I thought, oh, so they're, this is the license they automatically get. Like if you are a wedding barn, you just get this and you don't have to go through the approval and go to the town or anything like that. And then when I asked the legislators, they're like, oh, I don't know how that's going to work. Well, then I finally get dig down into it. And it's like, no, they don't just automatically get it. Because at first I was like, well, heck, I might open a wedding barn in my garage if, it, if I automatically get a liquor license. I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. And then I thought, man, that's really going to devalue all these other people who had a liquor license before and, and are so protectionist about it. It turns out it's available, but it still has to be approved by the municipality. So it still follows all the same rules that the municipality would otherwise use to approve it. So there's no guarantee that they'd be able to get that license. So again, the legislators and the governor are saying, oh, there's these ways to do it just like you always have. It's not the case at all. And they're it's gonna, definitely they're, not the same model. Right. And they're going to have a lot of confused municipalities, too, oh. because there are so many unanswered questions. So many questions I have just in what you're saying and just in reading your story. Think of how much my head was. Right. <laughs> I right. reread this law over and over again. I talked to both legislators. I've talked to a bunch of people in the industry. I ended up talking to the legislative council for Wisconsin to get some clarity on this because I was like, what does this mean? I can't, the legislators themselves don't know. One of the leading proponents of it, Howard Markline, declined to comment. Yeah, which <laughs> like, is kind of crazy. Um, and so there's all those aspects of it. And, and it's not bad for everyone. I mean, no. we want to say that because and you did talk to some around, whiners. whiners. But there's, well, definitely some whiners. Um, <laughs> but the other thing with the liquor license that is notable is the way it's written. So now just the wedding barns alone, event venues could now qualify for this. So that could be, I don't, the way I'm reading it, I'm like, so does that mean right on as an event venue, could we potentially qualify for a liquor license? We'd never want it, but like, could we? And some organizations might want that. So you might, you're opening the potential for a lot of places to come to their towns and say, I would like this liquor license. So imagine you're a town, we know how hard it was to get towns to understand that they could use the pulse for legals. And in fact, I think there's still one that doesn't still understand and really believe that they can. Imagine being a town who weren't, towns and municipalities were not part of this discussion at all. And now you're Egg Harbor and you have the Woodwalk Gallery in your town. This legislation, a weird quirk in it, also adds the ability for wineries and breweries to get full bars, full liquor licenses, which has never been allowed before. So in Egg Harbor, there are four wineries and Woodwalk Gallery, I believe another venue, they might go from having Carlsville Roadhouse and Horseshoe Bay to getting six new applicants for liquor licenses and full bars in their town overnight. Not all these places will get it. A lot of people I talked to have said, like, I don't want to be in that business. But that's the possibility you're opening up. And the legislature never read the law enough to even talk to these municipalities about what this will mean to them. That could be, like, the way I read this and the way that the legislative council confirmed it to me, like, 
there's a potential for 30, 40 new liquor licenses. And that's not a small thing. Across because the county. That's not a small thing even by municipality because it already takes the village of Egg Harbor, for example, hours to go through, seriously, to go yeah. through their annual liquor license applications. And it's also a pretty huge cost because those need to be published in legal notices. So there is like this whole thing that goes along with, it's not just like, you know, you go up to your town and you say, hey, I want this liquor license. And they're like, oh, all right, I'll just write this up yeah. for you. I mean, there's a there's a lot of time involved. And there just seems to be so much confusion about this law. And I mean, and I think it's really awesome that you dug into it. I know it caused you a lot of heartburn and, <laughs> and heartache. And I know that, you know, we were going back and forth as we tried to figure out like how best to present it because it is a crappy law in terms of how it's written. Yeah. It looks like all of these different organizations and lobbies had one part of it and then they just kind of jammed it all together. So the service that you have done in just bringing awareness to this is really important because it doesn't kick in for two years. For so, those venues. For so if you have a wedding venues, booked yeah. at one of these places next year, don't worry, you're going to still be able to do it just like you thought you were. Yeah. It comes into effect in two years for those wedding and event venues. But people need to start looking into it now. And now they, and so they have an opportunity to do that. And I did get confirmation after we went to press. I had this question about, does this apply to an art gallery? We talked about this a little bit earlier, who might serve beer and wine at a reception. And I had to confirm that, yes, it would apply to them because it's a public space. Who doesn't it apply to? Properties owned by towns and municipalities and counties. Crest Pavilion, not subject to the same rules. Can do everything they always did. A county park, waterfront park in Sister Bay that hosts weddings, village halls. Those can still do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So think about this if you are Woodwalk Gallery or About Time Farm. You have this new set of limitations. Maybe it's six events total per year, or you got to get this new liquor license. And you're competing with the Crest, which has a couple dozen weddings a year but that's a municipally owned property, they can still do it the old way. Yeah. And it also, for nonprofits, this is something, as somebody who's organized a few large events for nonprofit fundraisers up here, that changes the playing field there too. And let's say you want to do it, like I went to a climate change coalition at About Time Farm, and I went to another event at About Time Farm last year. Community events, as Lucas Lindau said, he's like, I've, I've, everybody who is in the wedding business at some point is like, I kind of want to get out of the wedding business <laughs> or I want to do less of it and more community stuff. And that's what he was saying. He can't afford to do discounted community stuff if he's limited to six events or really three. You can't now offer as one of your six ones to give a great deal to a nonprofit. So he's like, how is, he, he used the Ridges as an example, like how's the Ridges going to make money on their fundraiser if they got to pay me 100 to $150 a head? to use my space, sure. which is what I'd have to charge now based on this law mm -hmm. if I'm limited to so few events. So it can limit what they can do for their community even if they want to. And there's no exception for that. If you wanted to do a free one, as it sits now, you couldn't, if your brother were getting married and you wanted to just offer up your space, that would count as one of your six events. And it, it does give a great ambiance. Like I've been to a couple at about time. So this law is basically going to drive us all to Stone Harbor. Is that where we're all going to have to have our events now? Not that Stone Harbor is not a good place, but it is basically where everybody has their events in Sturgeon Bay. And in Northern Door, we don't have those things, but yep. we do have places like About Time. I mean, and it, it's really a, it's a great place to have 
a venue. And it would be unfortunate if they had to increase their costs because I know for the ridges, for example, that that would be very difficult. You know, the other thing that, and I keep saying, well, the other thing, because there's just so much about there this. There is. And this will be the last one I'll bring up, but I still don't know if I'm about Time Farm and I go for the full liquor license option, not the no sale event venue license. If I get that, can I just operate as a tavern? And as I talked to Joel Kitchens, he said, well, I would assume not. I assume it would just be for events, but it's not written. So you don't know. And then if you read the law and it says the town basically can't do, they have to treat you like any other liquor license applicant. So it would come down to like maybe zoning or conditional use permit stuff, which is confusing as heck anyway. But like there's a possibility that like, hmm, could I just operate as a bar when I'm not a, when I'm not hosting events? Well, clearly they don't have, and they probably don't have the application forms yet because... They're creating a whole new department. Right. They don't even have that yet. So if you're one of these venues trying to look at your economic future and plan it out, like, I think it's probably going to be months before you can feasibly do that. Right. You would think that they would have to, on the application form, say, kind of like when you get a beer license for, like, the Lions Club gets one of those special beer licenses to sell beer at an event, that has a you know, expiration, like it goes from X to X, Yeah, you know, so it might be. They call that a picnic license. Yes, it might be something like that. But there is still a lot up in the air, but it is really awesome that we've got it out there to to let people know if they are any of those types of organizations and they do use alcohol, then they need to start looking into this. And there may be answers out there and I just couldn't find them. So I'd love to hear from people if they do find them. And the final thing, or this really the final thing. <laughs> I dug into this because I, I heard about it from different a uh, number of different business owners. I happen to know a lot of people in the industry. Got married in a wedding barn, so I'm partial to that. But reading it and realizing how badly written it is and how many questions there are and how fast it was shoved through and that these questions could have been asked. Legislators could have been asking some of these businesses like how this would actually shake out if we if we did it this way, but they didn't. And makes you just wonder, what about all the other bills that we don't happen to dig into and spend 20 hours mm. diving into? What? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this one was unique in that. And, and actually, Senator Jacques told you that he didn't vote for it because of the way that it was put through. Yeah, the process. It didn't have any committee hearings. And it was part of an, an omnibus bill, the education omnibus bill, actually, in the past. And that was one manifestation. So, Which makes a lot of sense. I mean, education yeah, right? and liquor laws right? really like, totally. just I mean, throw I those together. I don't like omnibus bills at all. <laughs> no. But this acted like one without having a lot of other stuff attached to it. But it never had any hearings. And so, yes, there is no way that you can vet any of these things if you don't have that process, that legislative process. And we don't have enough reporters who have enough time. Can you imagine having to do a story like that every, I don't know, every week? <laughs> it couldn't happen. I mean, <laughs> no. it, right. It, it just, yeah. So who knows? Hopefully the legislative process doesn't work like that all the time. Yeah. We but can, we don't know. I mean, I have a hunch. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for doing that story, Miles. And that is in this week's Pulse. And... We have a beautiful cover that our graphic artist, Katie Homan, developed. Awesome cover. Really yeah, nice cover. Yeah, it's really, it's really nice. So it's been a great year. So whenever you're listening to this, if it's before the new year, have a great time. If it's after, happy new year. Enjoy 2024. We'll be there with you every step of the way. And Deb, thanks as always. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. 
This podcast is produced by Miles Danhausen Jr. and edited by Rachel Lucas. If you want to help us continue to create more great episodes just like this one, visit our website at doorcountypulse.com. Thank you.